If you've got a Bible this morning, that's what we're going to do. Get into that. Luke chapter 12. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 12 today. I'm going to be taking it, a look at one of the parables of Jesus as we continue our study through the parables of our King. And it's interesting, so before I get into this, we're going to be looking at the parable of the rich fool, Luke 12, verse, starting in verse 13. And we didn't do, I have to say this, we didn't do this on purpose. We, we made a finance announcement, and it's not the best news in the world, and then we just happened, I chose these parables weeks in advance, and uh, we just happened to land on this at the same time. So maybe the Lord has something to say to us today about this issue. But go ahead and get your Bibles open to Luke 12, follow along with me. Starting in verse 13, we read these words. And someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when someone has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And so he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good goods laid up for you for many years to come. So take your ease and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And so is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your consistent pursuit of us and filling in so many gaps that we aren't even aware of. Thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you for keeping us whole. Lord, we trust you in the ups and downs. We trust you in the feast and in the famine. And Lord, you know that Door of Hope is not trying to be weird or manipulative here. Lord, this, is, this was in your word today, and so here we are. And so beyond my intellect, beyond my few and futile words, Lord, may you communicate to your people in a way that only you can. May people hear what it is that they need to hear. May they be comforted. Lord, may there be a spirit of growing worship and of trust and of wanting and desiring to honor who you are, to be a people who bow the knee and say, whatever King Jesus wants, I will do. Lord, we, we know that you are trustworthy. You have proven yourself trustworthy. Help us as a people to grow in the confidence that we have in you. We have it objectively. Help us to have it more and more experientially more and more subjectively. Your people are listening, Lord, so please speak. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So verse 13 here starts off, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. That, fair enough, that's a, that's a fair question. Uh, and before we get to Jesus' response in, in depth, we could stop and ask ourselves, why did Jesus respond this way? I mean, the guy's just asking a, a simple question. It doesn't seem like it's really that big of a deal. 
But as always, if you look around this, the surrounding area, around the specific text, it can inform you of what's going on uh, in the greater context. And so if you just cast an eye onto the first verse of Luke 12, we see that this guy is asking a question to, to Jesus. That is happening. But there's also a lot that's behind that statement. And we get an idea of it if we, if we just do a little bit of, of, of surveillance around the surrounding text. In and, and verse 1, it says that at this time, so this is how the situation began. At this time, after many thousands of the crowd had gathered together, they were trampling on one another, and he, Jesus, began saying to his disciples first, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there's thousands of people that have gathered around Jesus. He's at a point now in his public ministry, people know who he is. He is causing quite a stir. Thousands of people are coming around him, so much so that they're trampling on one another. I mean, it's really quite a scene. If you stop and you imagine it in your brain, thousands of people scurrying over each other to come to Jesus, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to get to, to experience this guy that everyone's talking about, Jesus Christ. And Jesus starts to teach, which I would assume is at least part of the reason why people have come, is to hear him. No doubt there's people in the crowd that want to be healed. There's people in the crowd that have heard of his miraculous powers. But he starts to, he starts to talk. And I'm, I think that Whenever the key speaker starts to talk, we tend to shut up most of the time. You go to a concert, you be quiet, you listen to the artist. You go to a lecture, you be quiet, you listen to what the person has to say. Thousands of people have come, what is that? To listen to what Jesus has to say. And so he begins to teach. And not only does he begin to teach, but he actually, if you read through the text up to verse 13, he starts to say some stuff that's quite intriguing. It's even, it's even scary and and. and something that would make, make people inquire, like, what is he talking about? Shh, what is he saying? He says in verse four, I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and then after that have nothing that they can do. I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one after he has killed the body has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's, that's a heavy thing to say. And it doesn't exactly give us an idea of how many people are actually able to hear Jesus say these things, but we know that it's more than just his disciples. There's thousands of people there. The crowd can hear this. Jesus goes on to say, verse eight and following, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him before the angels of God. And he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Who is this guy, and how is he able to talk like this? He who, he who denies me, he who confesses me, is denied before or, or is confessed before the angels of heaven? Who, who is this guy? Verse 11, now whenever they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. And then stop. This guy raises his hand and says, teacher, my inheritance. And it's like, have you been listening to a thing Jesus has been saying? 
Where did this guy come from? He asks a question, but the reason why I want to pause and work up to this is because this question of his is a blatant interruption of what Jesus has been saying. This guy comes with the thousands to, to listen to Jesus, to see Jesus. Some people come with grievances, some people come with illnesses, some people come with curiosity, and Jesus begins to speak. And after some teaching and saying things that are quite intriguing and quite heavy, and at the very least would cause you to, to think and pause and ask some serious questions about who this guy is and what he's saying, this guy is expressing and is manifesting right now. His attitude is forget what Jesus is saying. I really don't care about that. I want my money. That's what he's saying. I want my money. Never mind rabbi about heaven and hell. Never mind about fearing the one who can kill the soul and then cast into hell and has authority over. Never mind all that. I have a very specific thing in mind and I want you to address that. That's what I want. And the reason why I pause there and, and belabor this point is because I know that we come to church with the same heart, with the same attitude, with the same expectations. Jesus this, Jesus that. I know, I know, I know, but I've got a thing. And what I wanna, what I wanna show us for the next half an hour or so is that Jesus cares about the thing. He does. He's not indifferent to our physical life. He is not indifferent to our to dishonesty in our family. He's not, he's not indifferent to our, to our own personal dramas. He's, he's not. But he does have a primary concern. He does have a, 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 pri- a list of priorities. And the first one is your heart. The first one is you. Whether you have an inheritance or not, whether you're sick or not, he's concerned about those things. We see all over the Gospels, Jesus heals people, he speaks with them, he listens to them, he humbles himself and he even touches these lepers that nobody else would ever come near. They're not even allowed in town. Jesus cares and he mercifully touches sick the dead, the infirm, the weak, the poor, the widows, the orphans. He loves them. His primary concern is what, is what is the state of your soul? Do you know who I am or do you just want something from me? This guy just wants something from him. And Jesus knows that. And so he responds to the man, verse 14. He said to a man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now, Jesus was a known rabbi, and rabbis had, we don't need to get into the weeds of this, rabbis did have a say in these sort of civil matters. He, he could have had an authority here, but again, this is not the kingdom that he came to make all better. He knew that the world is going to be messed up. It's going to stay messed up. He's concerned about this guy's heart. If there's a problem in the family, if this guy's brother is really doing something skeezy and keeping his inheritance from his own flesh and blood, Christ cares about that, but Christ looks at the heart and says, if I I can fix your heart, this sort of stuff actually stops happening. I'm not gonna just put a Band-Aid on the issue. I wanna get to the heart of the issue. He's less concerned about the fruit and he's more concerned about the root. Changing hearts, transforming people's lives for real, not just their behavior. And so he doesn't give this guy what he wants immediately because he knows what this guy actually needs. And so he challenges him and he pushes back on him. He could have had a say in this, but he's got a say not about physical inheritance here on earth. He is primarily concerned about eternal inheritance. That's his focus. That's where he's going. He knows what this guy wants, but he knows even more what it is that this guy really needs. More so, obviously, than this guy is even aware of himself. Who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? 
He knows that this guy's dealing with a problem of lust of money, problem of a lust of property. And so he, he gives a warning. And it says, he said to them, so <laughs> this guy spoke up, and now Jesus is going to, you got to be careful what you say in church. Jesus is going to make an example of this guy in front of a whole bunch of people. He's, and he said to them, watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. He addresses all. Be on guard of greed. And he's saying more, I'd like, to, I'd like to posit that he's saying more to those people in that day, in that time, in that exact moment than he is saying to us. It's been, it's been stated publicly that even the homeless in the city of Portland are much better off than people who have jobs in other parts of the world. These, these people that Jesus is speaking to, primarily poor, regular, knuckle busters, maybe day laborers, maybe they, have a, maybe they have a little plot of land, maybe they have a little bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a garden going on, maybe they have a little bit of a produce, but they don't have much. And so having a storehouse, having a savings account, having something in reserves is a, is a great thing. And again, Jesus is not, is not going, we're gonna see, he's not condemning Money. He's not condemning wealth. He's not condemning productivity. But he is challenging the heart of, I need that or else I'm done for. Be weary of this greed. Be weary of this need of money. And he's saying that to a group of people who don't have much. And I know that we, most of us in Portland, Oregon, have quite a bit. Jesus is speaking before the days of preservatives and freezers and Costco and Walmart and whatever other grocery stores there are out there where the entire country, 300 million people are contributing to our economy. This is much, much different. These people are poor. And still, Jesus gives this warning. Be weary of this greed. Keep an eye on this. Be aware of it. He says, watch out for it. Watch out for your satisfaction and your peace becoming your wealth. It's not the possession of wealth that he's worried about. It's the worship of wealth that he has in mind. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's funny. Money is this weird thing. It's so powerful and it's so divisive. And we will, we, we're in love with it more than I think we even realize but it's it's one of those things that the more that you have of it the acquisition of wealth doesn't satisfy our desire for wealth it provokes it the more that we have it seems the more that we want and there's a level to which that's okay but Jesus is warning beware of the greed and so he and so he spells this out he he tells us a parable he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. Now, we're going to go through waves with this rich guy, and I want to stop and go through one right now. The, the land of a rich man was very productive. This guy already, whoever he is in Jesus' parable, he should be presented as somebody who is already on his face before God in an attitude of gratitude. Because if it's his land that is very productive, maybe some of you know, I've worked on a farm before, it doesn't matter how hard you Labor. It does not matter the hours that you put in. One flood, one drought, one, one expression of a natural disaster, and all of your work is for nothing. 
This, this reminds me of one of my favorite parables that I actually was kind of like, why? I didn't choose this one. And I was like, why did we not choose this one? But it's not the point. It's in Mark 4. Jesus tells a parable. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who goes out and he's, he sows seed. And then he rises and goes to bed night and day. And the seed sprouts and the man knows not how. And I love that because, it's, I mean, 2,000 plus years ago, I put water there's the sun, I take this little thing, I put it in the ground, and corn comes up. I, I don't know what to tell you, but it works every time. This guy should be on his face acknowledging that though he is working, good, though he is diligent, great, fine, the actual crop is God's blessing. If his crop has been productive, it means A, that food has grown, B, he's had a body that can go out there and till the land, and see that there's been no pestilence, there's been no, there's these little worms in the ground that Angie and I get in our garden, and they are unbelievable, they eat the roots, that's it. Kills everything, and they're under the ground. This guy hasn't had that, no locusts, no nothing, his land has been productive, he should be thanking God. But he doesn't seem to think that way. He seems to have his mind set on something else. So he begins reasoning with himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I love this word in verse verse 17 that he began reasoning with himself. The word in the Greek means to lay out all of your options and then to deliberate between them. So he's not making an impetuous decision. He's not just kind of flying off the cuff. He's pausing, he's taking his time and he's he's, he's intentionally being thorough and deliberate with his options. What am I gonna do? And again, in and of itself, this is not bad. Having a, having a, a, a crop that is productive, having success, being a hard worker, not a problem. Thinking out, like what am I gonna do? Be, premeditating, using insight, using wisdom, relying on experience, planning ahead for the future. None of this stuff is wrong. It's actually very good, and the Bible tells us to do it. One of my, uh, one of my favorite Proverbs, the writer likens or compares a lazy person to an insect, the ant. He says in Proverbs 6.6, 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Who having no chief, no officer, no ruler, no one tells the ant what to do. The ant just does what the ant does. Having no boss, she prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep and a little slumber and a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a vagabond. And your want will come upon you like an armed man. If you're lazy, if you're a sluggard, if you're not diligent, if you're not proactive, that's the second time that's fallen. I'm just going to go. The Bible actually says don't be like that. Be like the ant. Rise up early. Get it done. That's good. It's the parable of the talents. You take what you have and you're able to, to manage it and sustain it in such a way that it produces a crop. It produces a bounty. And you share. You can be a benefit to others. So this, this guy preparing and thinking and planning and building and growing and expanding is not in and of itself the wrong. It's actually a good thing. 
Proverbs 10.4 also, he says, Poor is he who works with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So he stopped, he's thinking, he's pondering, all of this is fine, and then we come to verse 19. Here is his conclusion. I will build my barns bigger, I will store my grain and my goods. He's got grain and he's got goods, he's very wealthy. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Come and take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. And here is where the line is drawn in the sand. Here is where his words betray his heart. Here is where we see his motivation, we see his character, we see who he is. He does not pray. He's had time to think, he's had time to reason, he has stopped, he has paused, he has taken a moment, he has considered his options, and he's come up with building barns. All right, fine. But his conclusion is me, 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 me. I, 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 my barn, my goods. No prayer, no gratitude. He just talks to himself. He has found his security. He has found his, the object of his safety, the object of his trust. He has, he has what it is what, that he really has faith in. He has found his, his heart's rest. He says, take it easy. Chill, eat, drink, and be merry. The thing that you most need, O oh soul, you have, so now you can relax. The thing that keeps you the most secure, the thing that gives you the most grounded and substantiated and safe and guaranteed that you're going to be okay for many years, you have that. <sighs> Friends, what is it in our lives? What is it in your life that whenever you have it, you can go, you, 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 you turn in on yourself and you go, I've, I've got this, so I'm good. That's what Jesus is going at here. Because anything apart from Jesus Christ himself is fodder. It's false. It's a lie. And it goes away quickly. This guy says to his soul, you are good. He possesses the very thing that is his very purpose in life, which is his many goods. He has taken a gift of God and he has turned it into a counterfeit God, which is what humans do. It's a pernicious, constant thing that we have to fight. Even as believers, it's easy to take our kids, our careers, our marriages, our goals, our ambitions, our ministries, and turn it into a counterfeit God. We take the gift of God and we elevate it to a place that it does not belong and it should not be. Romans 1.25 says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they served the creature rather than the creator. This is what our hearts are prone to do. Never mind what God says, I've got my thing. Fill in the blank. It's different for each one of us. I've said this before, for me it was, it was it's been my youth. My youth was the thing that I was just like, you know what, since I've got this and I've got, I've got my youth and my health combined, I can't be stopped. And I'm not going to get into the details this morning. Most of you have heard the story before, but this is exactly how the Lord got my attention. Was he took my wealth and he, he took it away. Is what he did. I was 23 years old. I was in the prime of my life. I was young. I was fit. I was healthy. 
I was going to the gym every day. I had money in the bank account. There was a gal that I knew that I was going to marry. We were going to move to Ireland together. I was going to go there with some friends, live on a potato farm. Not kidding. That's really what we were going to do. We had this whole like five-year plan. It was going to get done. And before, it was like a month or so before my flight left to go to, to, go to Ireland, where the potato farm was, I got sick. And I got so sick that I ended up in the hospital three or four times. I lost my health. I went down, I went from like 180 pounds to 130. I lost all my money to medical bills. The plane took off without me. My friends went to Ireland without me. I was, I was done. And I realized in that moment, because that's a temporary thing. It's like, oh, well, you get, you know, you get, not, you get knocked down. You lost your trip. You lost your health. You can get it back. You'll be fine. But my mind changed. The Lord used that experience to show me experientially just how quick our lives can be over. Just how fast, in an instant, your 20s, gone. 30s, gone. Every one of us is going to die. And I learned from that experience, God taught me in that experience, what, do you, what is the thing that you can have? What is the thing that you want that when you get it, you go, in the deepest sense of your soul, you go, I got it. What is that? That's the issue of the heart that Jesus is going to. And he used that experience. The girl left, my health left, the money was gone. And by God's grace that my health came back, I, I, I re-earned a few bucks. I got married to my wife who I love so much. I'm so glad that past relationship did not work. But what, what really changed was my heart. What's really valuable? Where do I find my rest? And that's what this guy's not doing. And that's why Jesus is painting this very specific picture. I had turned the gifts of God into God, into my own counterfeit God. And this guy's greedy hoarding is because he needs these many goods so that he can have many years. This is his thinking. His ownership, his property of all of this wealth has given him a heart of arrogance. He says, soul, you'll be safe for many years because he has stuff, because he has property. James 4 speaks to this issue. James 4, verse 13 and following, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. But you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. 23-year-old Ian with your Ireland ticket and the girl on your arm and money in the bank and health in your bones, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And one day, tomorrow found me in a hospital bed having throat surgery because my life just, just like that, in a moment, I got sick. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will go and do such a thing and go to this place or that. But as it is, you're boasting in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. This is the heart of never mind what Jesus is saying, never mind what God in the flesh come to earth to seek and save the lost is trying to teach me. I want my thing. Never mind Jesus. Never mind eternity, never mind my mortality that's ever, ever, ever getting closer and closer and closer. I want my thing. If you're here this morning and you think that your money keeps you tight, your health keeps you tight, you know you're wrong. Maybe you don't know it yet, but my prayer is that God shows you and then you really know like he did me.
It's an incredible act of grace and mercy to realize just how futile this world is and all of its promises. This man makes no mention of God. He's got an abundance. He's built more than he had to store what, he's, what he has created without any consideration of the Lord, any consideration of gratitude or of the poor or of the widow or of the orphan or of the sojourner. There is no giving. There is no tithing. There is no benevolence. There's not even a notion of altruism in this guy's heart. Me, 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 because he needs it for his many years. He thinks he's safe. And this is essentially what the man asking for his inheritance said. I don't need you. I just want my inheritance. I'll be on my way. And I love that Jesus didn't give him what he asked for because Jesus loves this guy. Jesus loves you. And he stopped and he showed the guy the error of his way. He corrects him because Jesus is, again, not only able to give, but wants to give an eternal inheritance in heaven with him forever. This guy's security and his salvation was money. And that's the danger of money. The reason why money gets picked on specifically is because it gives us a false and yet intense sense of safety and of security. And it's, an, it's a security, it's a false sense of security that really only Jesus himself can give. And so it's foolish to think that money is the answer to giving us a life that's meaningful, a life that's peaceful, a life that is worthwhile. You don't need money to have a worthwhile life. You don't need money to be safe and secure. It's foolish to think otherwise, and this is what God says, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? This matter is serious enough that Jesus has in the words of God, calling somebody a fool. He's not saying it lightly, but he is, he's serious. This is a very serious issue. You believe that your money will save you. You're not considering God. You're not considering eternity. You're not considering your own mortality. You fool. And I've got to tell you, friends, that being this is very similar to what, how the Lord brought me to my knees and realized my own sin and my own arrogance and my own futility. That is exactly how I would describe myself. I mean, anyone here over the age of 30 can look back and be like, you know what? This life goes by quick. You can enjoy it. You can live it. Enjoy good things. Be productive. Build, build your barns. We're going to get to that again, but... But don't hold on to this too tightly. This is a gift. Life is a gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. But let's not lose sight of Almighty God in the midst of his blessings. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the sun to cast down on all of us. It's a beautiful thing. But don't let that, don't let his, his riches that he has given you distract you from him because he is better than anything that he gives. The good things that he gives are a taste of who he is. And this is serious enough of an issue to get confused by that, that Jesus puts in the word of God, the, the words in the mouth of God himself saying, this guy is a fool. It's a serious thing. And to be a fool, it doesn't mean to be unintelligent or to be uneducated. It means to be thinking wrongly. It means to have your goals set on the wrong thing. It means for your ultimate purpose to be misguided. 
Psalms 14.1 says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. It's a foolish thing to say. This very night, your soul is required of you. This guy had hoped that he would have years, and he didn't even have to the end of the day. I've said it so many times, I don't even know if I should keep saying it, but you guys, I've, I've shared, maybe there's someone here who hasn't heard it, I've shared before, my, I have a, my friend Ben, 37 years old, healthy. Went to bed on a Tuesday at his parents' house, never woke up. He never woke up. That very night, his soul was required of him. He didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. There's no reason why that should have happened. It is in our arrogance that we think, well, some, someday I'll get right with God. Someday I'll consider him. Someday I'll get serious. Someday I'll consider mortality and salvation and heaven and hell and sin. But right now, I just want to boogie. I want to shake and bake. And I'm going to tell you what, the shaking and baking might be different and boogieing might look a little bit different, but you can love the Lord and still boogie. Like, he's not a, he's not a killjoy. Get saved. It's great. It's a different kind of boogie, but it's still a good boogie. I had to relearn how to boogie when I got saved, a boogie that honors the Lord. But this isn't like give up your good life and come live in the desert under a rock and try to like squeeze water out of sand and have a poverty mentality. That's not what this is. It's just what is your ultimate, what is your ultimate hope? What is your ultimate faith? I can't answer that for you. You've got to ask yourself that. Pray, get on your knees and ask God, am I legit? Or am I just here because I want my inheritance, whatever that is? Because my fear, for, I mean, at any day, any day, we could die. There's so much good news in here in this parable, and there's so much severity. There's so much seriousness. You fool, this very night, he thought that he had years, and he didn't even have to the end of the day. We know that that happens. Your soul is required of you. God owns us. Whether we know it or not, he is the creator of everything. All things are made through him, by him, and for him, Colossians 1 says of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He tells us how to boogie. He tells us what to do with our time. He tells us how to spend our money. He tells us what to think. He tells us what to do. And he even can just take our souls because our souls are his. And he doesn't need our permission. It's a very serious thing. He owns us, whether we know it or not. Praise God, he is good and he is gracious and he is slow to anger and he is long-suffering. He's got mercy for a whole long time. Today is the day of salvation, Paul says. Even the thief on the cross, I mean, maybe an hour or two, maybe three hours before he died, called out to Jesus and he was saved right then and there. Boom. It's rad. Jesus is good. I'm getting ahead of myself, but your soul is required of you and who will own what you have prepared? I love this. Ecclesiastes says this really well in, in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and following. He says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. That's what's going to happen with your stuff. Someone's going to box it up, 
They're gonna put it in the attic somewhere. They're gonna sell it. My dad just died. And it was really, it was, it, well, he died in August. He didn't just die. He's been pushing a year now. But it was, it was really a surreal experience because I, I remember walking into the house the day that he died, going back into his house, and it was so heartbreaking because all of his stuff was there, you know? His shoes were still sitting in his spot on the couch, and a cup that he had used to drink water was still sitting on the, the, the counter in the bathroom. His clothes were all there. But eventually, it's like, his friends came, and I was so heartbroken. It was like my dad's stuff. It was so, and then after a few months, it's like, sure, Larry, you can take the fishing poles, and yeah, Bob, you can have his, his rock tumbling equipment, and yeah, you can have his gardening tools, and yeah, we, we sold this pontoon boat that he loved, and it's a bit like, it just goes away. It just goes away. And in another, you know, by the time I'm dead, no one's gonna care. The baby that my wife is growing in her body right now, never gonna know granddad, doesn't care. We are gone just like that. Who is gonna have the stuff that you have worked so hard for? Who knows whether this man who takes the stuff after I am dead, who knows whether he will be a wise man or a man of simple-minded folly, but he'll have power over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored and for which I have acted wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart to, dis- to, to despair of all my labor for which I had labored under the sun. This guy's crop had been a success. It had been in abundance. He had worked hard. He had been blessed. He had been successful. And the Lord is saying, does not matter. Does not save you. You cannot take it with you. It's gonna just go to somebody else. And they're probably going to tear your farm down and build a condo there. That's what we do now. Nobody cares. It's sad and it's true. And praise God that we have a hope. Praise God that this isn't the only truth for us. Praise God that we're not just an evolved, complicated germ that can talk and communicate and walk around and build stuff. Praise God that there is a, a heavenly father. Praise God that he knows how many hairs are on your head and that there is every moment just come to him repent of your sins believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved repent and believe the gospel there is hope and then whenever God takes your soul he takes it home he requires his soul your soul of you and he takes it home where am I I just got lost goodness gracious Money is easy to love, it's easy to hoard, it's easy to hold on to, and that's what makes it dangerous. Money is not God, it is a gift from God. And the generosity that we manifest with that gift is a hallmark of trusting the very God who gives it. And we're commanded to give it. And I've noticed that in the, in the church, friends, I've noticed in the church that it's, it's easy for us to trust God with our time. We'll volunteer to do stuff. You know, we volunteer to do hospital visits. We volunteer to lead Bible studies, to lead community groups, to lead book clubs. To, we show up early for prayer, and all of that's good stuff. But I've noticed that there's a trust issue, and I, I'm guilty of this. I've noticed that there's a trust issue when it comes to money because that's actually a sacrifice. And that's actually a good thing because if it's actually a sacrifice, it actually shows you how much you trust 
And I love the work that Russ has done and that, and that Tim is doing now and the, the team that does the finances because there is any, that as church leadership, we are responsible to on a dime be able to tell you where our money goes, what we're doing with it. If I show up here in a Tesla, you should ask me questions. And in my defense, I bought the Harley before I was a pastor, so leave me alone. But I'm glad that people do that work because there is transparency. We do have a responsibility as church staff before God and before you to be honest and to be able to be willing to be honest at any time. Don't ask me because I, I don't know. It's above my pay grade. I talk to one of them. But it is there. And we do communicate with you where our money goes because we want you to know that we're not being foolish, that we're not in this for the money. And so I'm glad that there's people here that are, that are able to show you that we're not being ridiculous with it, that we, are trusting, that we are trusting the Lord as well. But what about yourself? Door of Hope is hurting right now. And I thought about this all week. I even called a friend to ask for help. Like, how do I think about this? How do I present this? And this guy's been a pastor for decades. And he's like, you know what? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And you know what, friends? That's, I know that that's the case. And as your pastor, as your friend, as someone who's here in this community living in Portland along with you, I, I know times are tight. I, <laughs> I've tried to fill up my... I went, to the, I went to the gas station the other day, not even a nice one, and the gas light was on. I put some money in the tank, and the gas light was still on. That's never happened to me before in my life. I know times are tight. And so I'm not going to sit here and say, here's what you need to do. I'm not going to tell you that. But this does seem to be an issue that we need to bring up because you need to go before God and be honest. Am I trusting you or am I trusting my money? And make the decision. What is gracious giving for you? What does that mean for you personally? I cannot give you a number and I won't. But I'm less concerned. I have to say as a pastor, I'm less concerned about the money. I'm not really that bothered by it. Honestly, friends, if I'm being really transparent, this is not an actual concern. But if, let's say Dora Hope fell apart, not even because of money, let's just say it fell apart because there, like, actually there was an earthquake and the building fell into the ground. I, I'm not worried about that. I trust the Lord to take care of Angie and me. When she has that baby, she's gonna quit her job and she's gonna be a full-time stay-at-home mom. That's what she wants. I say yes and amen. Praise God. And we are gonna be broke and I do not care. I don't care. I trust God. I'm not worried about money. I want y'all to be the same way. That's what I want. I want you to trust the Lord. Whenever trusting him really gets costly. I want you to know that he is good. I want you to know that he loves you. I want you to know that he is not holding on to Door of Hope congregants going, oh, whoop, you know, I almost dropped her. Who? I bumped him on his head. He's in control, guys. He's safe. Trust the Lord. I love this verse. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, Paul writes this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Money is not our security, ultimately. It's a gift. It makes things easier. It really helps in a pinch. I know it's true. But God is our ultimate security. The Father is our ultimate hope. And he proved it. He proved it to us. He doesn't just 
tell us that and then expect us to trust him blindly. He sent us his, his son. It doesn't get more costly than that. Romans 8, 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who indeed did not spare even his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now in the case of this guy in Luke 12, all things included Jesus saying no. Now that inheritance issue might have got worked out some other time, some other place, but Jesus knew that what this guy needs is his heart to be checked. He gives us what we need. We get upset because we don't get what we want. But if you trust the Lord, even Job, which is all about a guy losing everything and still trusting the Lord, Job said, though he slay me, I will worship him. That's a faith. And Christ came not only to show that God loves us, but to show that he's willing to to spend a lot. It was very costly for him to do so. First Peter 1 says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We're all caught up with silver and gold. Jesus shed his blood. How much do we love him? How much do we trust him? Enough to shed our blood for him? Because he did that for us. Thank God that you are so loved. Thank God that he is that good. Thank God he is that trustworthy. We freak out because we forget who he is. I think it's that simple most of the time. I think that we freak out because we forget just already what he's already done. And we get blinded to the things that he currently is doing. And so is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So is the one who stores up treasure for himself. Fleeting, short-lived, foolish, a mist, a vapor, a shadow, a facade. Come and go. Psalms 103 says that like the flower of the field, it dies, the wind passes over it, it's gone, and the place where it was, remembers it no more. So is the one who is only storing up himself treasure here on earth and is not rich towards God. What is it to be rich towards God? Well, it begins with this. Putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. That's where it begins. Repenting and believing the gospel, that is where it begins. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved, we get his medals. We get his achievements. We get what he gets. We are children of God. We are adopted children, but we are children of God. The sonship between Father and Jesus are different than ours, but we are invited into the family table and we get covered under the record, under the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul writes in the book of Romans that if we then we are heirs of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. Never mind the earthly inheritance. You become a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That is how great his mercy is. That is how great his giving is. I would be happy sleeping in the doghouse in the backyard of heaven, but we get invited into the table. Let that change your heart. Let that change your heart, and then think about tithing to the church. Paul says that we ought to be cheerful givers, and I just want to say what Paul says, because what Paul says is what the Holy Spirit says. 
But I will, I will end on this note. In the evening service, which you guys really need to start coming to, it's so rad. We're finishing up John 17 tonight, the high priestly prayer, and we're actually going to consider this verse, but I'm going to risk going just a few minutes over time because I want to make, I want to make this point and then I'll be done. The last night of Jesus' life, the high priestly prayer, it's, he's, he's, with his, he's with his disciples, the, the 11 that are left. Judas is just around the corner with the posse to come and, and take Jesus away in handcuffs and chains. And Jesus is praying before the Father, and he's praying for his disciples. He's praying that they would be kept. He's, re, he's praying that they would remain faithful. He knows that they're fickle. He knows that they're fumbling. He knows they're messed up and they're confused. Their faith is weak, although it is genuine. And he's praying for them and he's praying for them and he's praying for them. And then in verse 20, his, his focus shifts from his disciples who are immediately there to us today. He says in verse 20, I pray not only for these who are here, but in those, for those who will believe because of their testimony, because of their word. Which means that even as Jesus knew that he was going to the cross to die, to rise again, to ascend, he knew that as messed up as his boys were, that by the power of God they would be successful and the church would go on, that people would get saved, that the gospel would go forth, and so Jesus knew to pray for us today. Jesus has a lot of optimism for the local church. He was praying for the local church moments before he was taken away in chains. That's an incredible thing to think about and it's an incredible gift that we get to be a part of that. God thought of you, thought of Door of Hope, thought of the, every, the, the big capital C church, the global church is made up of millions if not billions of little churches and we get to be a part of this one. I will tithe to that. I don't want to guilt trip. I don't, I don't want to twist your arm. I don't. I want you to go to Jesus and look at how amazing his gifting is, how amazing his benevolence is, and then be honest in prayer and go to him with that. Because the hard truth right now, friends, is that door of hope is hurting. I have faith that we'll be fine because I have faith that Jesus will lead his people to do what he wants them to do. And I think that that would include Door of Hope sticking around and not making the banks nervous. But the point is Christ. Look at what he has done. Look at what he has given. For us, for you, for me, he went to the cross so that we could have an internal inheritance with him, co-heirs with Christ. That is awesome. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for your extravagant grace, your extravagant giving. Thank you for being kind and for being patient. Thank you for, even in the moment, even with those 11 disciples scared and panting and sweating and sleep deprived and nervous and full of anxiety and fear, you had, you had hope for them because you, you knew that you had their back and you have the church's back. And so Lord, I, I just pray that you would you would communicate to the people today what it is that you have for them, but that everything that they consider, everything that they when, they, when they pause and they begin reasoning with themselves, that they would filter all of their reasoning and all of their reckoning and thinking and processing through the cross, through the amazing gift that you've given us. Lord, help us to grow here. All of us are imperfect. Thank you for being slow to anger. Thank you for being abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
pray, Lord, for salvation. Pray, Lord, for any heart that is here this morning who does not know you, that you would draw them to yourself. That no matter if they have an inheritance here on planet Earth or not, that they would be welcomed into the inheritance of eternity with you and with the saints forever. We trust you with these things, Jesus. We love you for them. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.